0: plushcare.com slash weightloss. The
1: Economist In London, this is The Economist, with Tasting Menu, a selection of the tastiest morsels from this week's issue. I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio, and on the menu this week, how sharing power could free phone users from dead battery tyranny. Why the blue sky thinking of billionaires should be welcomed. And ready-made city centres pop up all over Florida. But first, the prosperity puzzle was our cover line this week. For decades, the means to measure economic and materialistic prosperity has been defined by one figure alone, gross domestic product. But GDP is a poor measure of material well-being, we argued. To solve the puzzle, the measurement needs some statistical tinkering.
2: This one number has become shorthand for material well-being, even though it is a deeply flawed gauge of prosperity and getting worse all the time. A global anachronism with a firm foothold, though. A creature of the 1930s slump and the exigencies of war in the 1940s, its original purpose was to measure the economy's capacity to produce. Since then, GDP has become a lodestar for policies to set taxes, fix unemployment and manage inflation.
1: One that is at times woefully inaccurate.
2: Nigeria's GDP was bumped up by 89% in 2014 after number crunchers adjusted their methods. And it's starting to feel clunky in a fast-changing world. When paid-for goods, such as maps and music recordings, become free digital services, they too Drop out of GDP.
1: So our cover story called for nothing less than a statistical revolution.
2: The current measurement of prosperity is riddled with errors and emissions. Better to embrace a new approach than to ignore the progress that pervades modern life.
1: And you can read all about our revolutionary proposals on our website at economist.com. We've also found inventive prowess of the urban variety. An article in our US section described how ready-made downtowns are blurring the lines between the city
0: and the suburb. Today, the fad in South Florida is not golf villages or retro towns, but ready-made city centres. And they're popping up all over the Sunshine State. Builders call these developments mixed-use, a term that fails to capture what they are up to. The idea of combining flats, offices and shops, even in a single building, is not new. Look at an old New York district like Chelsea. But these developers are simply
1: plonking urban hubs into places that lack them.
0: Whereas new urbanist settlements often promote a small town ideal, these sell big city life. Which is why they have words like metro, city and centre in their names. Though if other cities follow Florida's lead, such words may lose their meaning. South Florida is becoming a landscape of scattered centres. Sprawl with bumps.
1: We leave the prolific sprawl of urban Florida now and flip through to our China section, where a fear of mass dwelling is on the up. As the country's biggest cities continue to grow, infrastructure is buckling under the pressure. New methods are being used to
3: curb the sprawl, but they're misguided, as our article argued. Shanghai is stepping up its efforts to control the growth of its population. One of its techniques is to make it more difficult for unskilled workers from the countryside to live there, such as by knocking down their cheap ramshackle accommodation. And the capital is also ardently trying to curb the surge. Last year, Beijing's government said it would not allow the capital's population, those resident six months or longer, to exceed 23 million before 2020. The governments of both cities have been deluged with complaints about pressures on transport, schools and hospitals. So
1: the local governments have struck at those most easily displaced.
3: Rural migrants, whose household registration papers, or HUCO, make them ineligible for urban benefits, such as social housing or subsidised health care and education.
1: Yet the measures they've imposed are exacerbating problems rather than addressing them. The
3: two cities may believe they are helping middle-class residents, but they risk pushing up the cost of labour that the middle classes depend upon – not least for help at home.
1: From the megalophobia, that's a fear of large things, of China's urban planners, we move to the megalomaniac tendencies of philanthropic billionaires. Throughout history, those with excessive means have often conjured up outlandish ideas, trying to benefit the societies they live in. Writing among the pages of our business section this week, our Schumpeter columnist says we should welcome those inflated ideas, however bonkers some of them may seem.
4: Sir Richard Branson, the boss of the Virgin Group, and Elon Musk, the entrepreneur running Tesla, a car company, have both founded space ventures, Virgin Galactic, and SpaceX.
3: Yet
1: for some technological hegemons, even space isn't the final frontier.
4: Dmitry Itzkov, one of the pioneers of the Russian internet, says that his goal is to live to 10,000.
1: By which time we'll all be on those long promised holidays to space. And blue sky thinking isn't new to wealthy individuals.
4: Henry Ford launched a succession of ambitious schemes for improving the world, including eliminating cows, which he couldn't abide. In 1915, he took a ship of leading business people and peace activists to Europe to try to end the First World War and get those boys out of the trenches.
1: Priorities may have changed, but the fuel driving them is the same, a blend of idealism and a touch of ego.
4: The Minted are competing with each other to produce the most eye-catching schemes, much as they vie to run the most successful businesses. That helps to explain why the billionaire space race has escalated from sending rockets into orbit to sending spaceships to Alpha Centauri.
1: Yet there's method in the madness, our columnist argued.
4: Deep-pocketed entrepreneurs not only add to the number of moonshot projects, literal or metaphorical, they also introduce fresh thinking.
1: However big the fish, there's always something to be gained from the minnows – Goldman Sachs, the high-rolling investment bank, is used to dealings of a grandiose nature. But as an article in our finance section reported, it's recently begun courting small depositors too.
2: To the extent that Goldman Sachs has anything to do with the little guy, it is usually accused of trampling over him in the pursuit of profit. As an investment bank... Goldman had not sought out deposits and the onerous regulation that comes with them.
1: And the little guy isn't exactly small fry either.
2: In recent years, it has declined even to manage assets for clients with less than $10 million in the hope of escaping rules regarding unsophisticated investors. But has the banking
1: behemoth had a
2: change of heart? All that changed in mid-April when it completed its purchase of GE's internet banking subsidiary. That brought it $16 billion in retail deposits. It is now soliciting more, offering generous interest, by today's miserly standards, on balances of as little as $1.
1: So perhaps a change of business plan. But what Goldman intends to do with its new earnings is unknown.
2: Some speculate that they will be used to fund Mosaic, its embryonic online lending business, which plans to dish out modest sums to individuals and small businesses.
1: Borrowing a little power may do a world of good, and that's also true outside of the financial world. It's a near certainty that anyone with a phone has been caught short with no charger in sight. But as an article in our science section explained, there could soon be help at hand, a stranger's hand.
0: After a day of emailing, streaming music, downloading podcasts, watching cat videos and snapping selfies, a device can easily be left without enough charge to make an emergency call.
1: Or indeed to take that emergency selfie. Researchers
0: have designed a new charging system, which should help. To use it, someone holds a phone with an expiring battery against another device, a phone or even a smartwatch or a fitness band. And this initiates a power transfer from one to the other. And
1: while sharing the aforementioned power, there may not even be a need for small talk, thankfully.
0: Some 12 seconds of contact provides enough juice to make a one-minute telephone call. Or more importantly, one minute of contact would allow, say, a four-minute music video to be watched.
1: And for want of better music, you needn't look further than the subject of our obituary this week. A man who not only defied categories but created new ones, Prince Rogers Nelson, arguably one of the world's greatest pop musicians, died on April 21st, aged 57.
2: Brutal as a rapper? Tender as a balladeer, swooping smoothly from bass to falsetto. Astounding on guitar, soaring off into a universe of riffs and improvisations. Sometimes it even recalled an act of God. At the halftime concert at the Super Bowl at Miami in 2007, in torrential rain, he seemed unable to stop.
1: And he was always partying, like it was 1999.
2: Most necessary of all was the freedom to reinvent who he was. Throw the world off his track and hide. The best ruse came in 1993, when he changed his name to an unpronounceable symbol that combined gracefully the male and female signs. It couldn't even be whispered. He drew it on the air.
1: Indeed, if Prince had any true calling, it was to be free.
2: Dance with a white man, writhe with a black woman, kiss both, couple with either, be both races and sexes and neither, in one cat-like commanding frame, and along the way, sell more than 100 million records worldwide.
1: Our goodbye there to the dazzling Prince of Pop. I'm the artist formerly known as Anne McElvoy, and that was our tasting menu. Do send us your feedback via email radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. In London, this is The Economist. <music>
4: Custom spray 5-in-1. Only from rust